Remember the last time you camped out? Imagine that this became the way you lived every day. No roof over your head. No guaranteed food supply. No protection from the wild animals. Refugees around the world face these hard conditions every day to become a refugee. As an American, it is one of the worst scenes imaginable. But the truth is that the wilderness can become a place where you meet God. This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you open the Bible for yourself and learn what it has to say. Today, our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, turns to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 17, where we will discover how God will shelter His people, Israel, when they face the worst threat of their history. Try to feel what it would be like to become a refugee as we join Dave. Whenever armies invade, like whether it's World War II or the Nazis invading into Poland or the Nazis coming down into Czechoslovakia, whenever armies start to march, refugees have to flee. In fact, that's one of the most horrible things you can ever ever imagine. In fact, it's really hard for you as Americans to even identify with that because as Americans, we really never have had to flee our homes. Even when we fought major battles, the battles have always been out there and the Revolutionary War is just way, way too far gone there in the past and the Civil War is just too far gone that we as modern Americans, we don't think about ever having to leave our homes. But the truth of the matter is that across the world, even today, lots and lots of people know what it's like to be a refugee. They know what it's like to not be sure that they're going to have safety or protection or shelter. Throughout the world, the idea of an army that invades and then having to run for your life is just a very common thing that takes place in people throughout the world. I want you to imagine that that happened to you. How would you feel? We would need to bring in our team of psychiatrists and to handle all the kind of shock treatment and the emergency people that would need to work with all these refugees would have to go through you know, all kinds of counseling later on because it's one of the most tumultuous things that can ever happen to you. In your own life today, it's possible that you, you're in kind of in a wilderness. A wilderness is a place of loneliness. It's a place where you're filled with despair. A wilderness when you feel that, that everything is gone. All that I hoped for, all that I dreamed about, all the places that I thought were safe are ripped away from me. That's what it's like to be in the wilderness. As Americans, we might not be in a wilderness physically, but I think it's very possible that some of you might feel that you're in a wilderness spiritually or emotionally. Contrary to what we think, biblically, the wilderness is the place where the Lord will meet us and the Lord will protect us. You see, one of the things that happens in the wilderness is all your natural props are knocked out from underneath you. You see, all of us prop our lives up. We prop our lives up with our friends and the encouragement of our friends. And we prop up our lives with our dreams and our, and our houses that we build. And we prop up our lives with our jobs. And, and, and what happens is, is, is that these things really hold us together. But you know, when you become a refugee, all that's kicked out from underneath you. The slats are kicked out. And there's nothing there. And as you start to talk with someone that's out there in the wilderness, they don't have anything else they can depend upon. You see, we're so used to having houses around us. We're so used to being able to flip a switch and the temperature comes up. But remember the last time you were out in the wilderness? 
When I was a kid, we spent a lot of time camping out in the Adirondacks, and we would go up into Mount Marcy, and we would hike with our backpacks, and we would be way out in the woods. And one of the things we'd like to do, I remember we took a bunch of kids from Long Island and Manhattan, and these kids were, they were really super with a switchblade. They were really great with a zip gun. But man, when you got them about eight hours back into the Adirondacks, and you put those great big pine trees around them, and they could hear bears growling at night, they became like little puppies. I mean, they suddenly got really dependent upon you. Why? Because there's just something really scary about being out there in the wilderness. And you can hear the wild animals. And wild animals that you don't even give a thought to, suddenly when you're out in the wilderness, those animals really scare you. And it's a place where you realize, you know, I'm vulnerable. I'm unprotected. Who in the world is going to meet my needs now? And all of our our prideful, self-sufficient props are kicked out from underneath us. You know, all the way through Scripture, all the way through Scripture, God has showed us that because he loves us, he'll usually take us out in the wilderness. I want you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at a time when God's going to take the children of Israel in the future out into the wilderness. And this is probably the ultimate wilderness experience that anybody could ever have. It's at the culmination of time. What we have in the middle of Revelation 12 is that this incredible drama that we studied together that introduced these weird, weird characters like the dragon and this pregnant mother and the birth of the baby male child and the dragon tries to swallow the male child, but the male child is taken away and taken up to the throne room of God and then the dragon stomping around and we're going to pick up the story as the male child Jesus has been caught up to the throne room of heaven. And the covenant community of Israel that generated him is still on earth. And what we do is we jump in time, which prophecy often does, and I'm going to show you why I believe we jump in time. Prophecy often presents things like you look at a mountain range, and it'll show you one mountain, and then you'll jump immediately to the mountain that's behind there, but you don't know that there's several thousand years in between those two mountains. And the book of Revelation does that in chapter 12, and I'll show you why I believe that in just a minute. But I want you to pick it up with the birth of the male child. It says in verse 5 of Revelation 12, she gave birth to a son. A male child, that's our great deliverer. That's the child that we studied about all through scripture that was going to be brought into the world. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. That's the theme of the book of Revelation. The Jesus that we worship is going to rule over the nations someday. He will be ruling over the United Nations. He's going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's living inside my heart this morning. And I hope he's living inside your heart. And he's the one that's going to rule, according to Psalm 2, with a rod of iron. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. In this context, Revelation jumps from his virgin birth, through his perfect life, to his, his crucifixion for our sins, to his resurrection, to his ascension, all in one gulp. It just says that God just snatches him away from the clutches of the dragon. Satan thought he could snuff out the male child, but he was not able to do it. Now look at verse 6. The woman fled into the desert. That's the wilderness we want to talk about today. The woman fled into the, into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. Now you wouldn't think that the desert, that the wilderness is a place prepared for you by God, but it is. And it tells us exactly how long she's going to have to be there. It says she'll be taken care of for 1,260 days. It's exactly 42 months. It's exactly three and a half years of 30-day months. 
You say, Dave, what is this period? Well, the book of Daniel predicted, if you turn to Daniel chapter 7, the book of Daniel predicted that in the final stages of the monster government, the fourth kingdom that rises up to conquer the world, the the revived Roman, Western, Greek combination of Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, Rome, all mixed up together, there's a beast that rises up. And in Daniel chapter 7, it tells us about this kingdom. If you turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, it says this. As I watched, the horn, that's the Antichrist, the Antichrist horn, was waging war against the saints, the people of God. And he was defeating them. It doesn't seem to be right. The Antichrist, during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, is going to be defeating the people of God, especially the Israelite people of God. It says, until the angel of days came and he pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for them to possess the kingdom. Now, how long is this period of Antichrist victory going to take place? If you turn, look down at verse 25, it says, he will speak against the Most High. The Antichrist will be able to blaspheme the Most High. He will oppress or pressure or put down the saints. He's going to try to set the, the change the calendar, the set time to the laws. going to change traditional morality. And the saints will be handed over to him for a time, time, and half a time. A time is one year, times is two years, and a half a time would be another half a year or so, exactly three and a half years. That's how long Daniel predicted, 600 years before Christ, that when Antichrist came into his kingdom in the end of time during what we call Daniel's 70th week, that Israel, that is now coming back to the Messiah, along with those that they are reaching with the gospel, is going to be under the pressure of Antichrist for three and a half years. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, and let's see how Jesus and his discussion of end times, how Jesus also picked up on the same idea and told us about it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Listen. So when you see standing in the holy place, the holy place would be the temple in Jerusalem. Evidently, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt during the tribulation period. Halfway through the tribulation period, it's going to be desecrated by some kind of an idolatrous image of Antichrist because Jesus said that the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Let the reader understand, when you see that standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea, Judea is the area around Jerusalem, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let no one on the roof of his house go down and take anything out of the house. In other words, and I've done this, in the old city of Jerusalem, you can actually walk from one housetop to the next. And I've done that with Jonathan and Mary's dad. Mary and his dad and I did it. You can walk all the way around the wall. You can walk right on the roof of various houses. And so it doesn't make much sense to us as Americans. But in the old, even today in the city of Jerusalem, it makes lots of sense. You can be up there on the roof and you can actually flee from the city right along those roofs. And what he's saying is don't go downstairs and get your stuff. Man, just take off. Get off the wall and flee out into the mountains. Get down into the Jordan River Valley. Get up into the mountains. And many modern-day interpreters hold that maybe they even flee over to what is now modern-day Petra. They're in the mountains of Mount Seir. And they're very high mountains that are all around this enclosure, this incredible area that's all protected. And maybe that'll be the place where the Lord God provides for them. What Jesus predicted that halfway through the tribulation period, there was going to be this abomination set up. And he said to his people, flee from the city of Jerusalem during that time. 
Interesting enough, in history, God's people actually listened to this prophecy because in 67 AD, when the armies of Titus landed in Caesarea and the army, the, the Roman armies began to just come like pincher movements up into the land of Galilee, up in the land of Judea, there were many believers and Jews that had come to know Christ, that had joined the church, because remember in the early days of the church you had a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles. Many Jews believed this was a Messiah, and many of that of those believers that believed this was a Messiah in 67 AD actually read these prophecies, and when the Roman legions began to lay siege upon Jerusalem, they fled out in into the desert, and they went down into the Judean desert where David fled from Saul, and they even many of them even went, went, went to Petra, which is across the Dead Sea and up into the mountains, and they were protected. Because when war breaks out, you don't want to be in the heart of Dallas. It's much better to be in Midlothian. In fact, it's much better to head for the hills. It'd be much better to head for Big Bent. That would help you to understand what these people are doing. I know most of you don't even think like that, but when you're under siege, that's the way you begin to think. We've got to get out of here. We've got to get away from the centralization places of power. And that's what Jesus predicted was going to happen. And that's what Revelation chapter 12 is telling us about. And it said it's going to take place for three and a half years, and they're going to be protected in the wilderness. Now, what's going on in the midst of this struggle? You know, why, why is God even allowing this to take place? I want you to look at the war in the heaven. First of all, as we think of Israel fleeing during the tribulation period, as we think of our own troubles and our own tribulations and our own times of wilderness experience, what's going on? The very first thing I want to underline in your thinking about finding a shelter in the desert is you need to realize that your life is a lot more than just physical stuff. Do you realize that there's a battle going on over your life? That there's a spiritual dimension, that there is warfare in the spiritual dimensions that's absolutely strategic. And sometimes you're not going to be able to figure out what's really going on in the earthly arena because it has to do with the spiritual arena. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? Look what it says in verse 7. Now, there was war in the heaven. You see, Star Wars is not real, but the mythology that Star Wars is trying to get you into is this idea of other worlds and, and other issues that are involved in other kingdoms is a very real thing. And the Bible, not George Lucas, is the place to learn about that. And I want to really encourage every one of our little kids and every one of our teenagers, you need to get into the book. The other day in the hospital, I had a precious child that's close to me come up to me, and they had this incredible book of Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. And this precious kid went through every single page of The Phantom Menace. He knew the Queen. He knew uh, Anakim Skywalker. He knew the history of that. He knew uh, you know, Darth Maul, and he knew all about him, and he showed me one picture after another. In other words, he knew all the characters in the Episode 1. And I looked at this incredible artwork. I looked at the incredible lad. I said, good night. He held an action figure in his hands of Darth Maul. I said, well, you know, this, what's this story really about? He said, oh, it's about, I mean, tell me the ultimate idea. What's the big idea in this story? And the little kid looked at me and said, oh, it's really about good and evil. I said, that's right. I said, do you know another story that talks about good and evil that's a real story? This is just a pretend story. Well, he wasn't so sure it was just a pretend story. But I said, this is just a pretend story. Can you tell me another story? And, I, and, I, and then I tried to eke it out of him. I said, you know, at Christmas, is there something we celebrate? And Easter, is there something we celebrate? 
Well, slowly but surely, I kind of dragged out of him the story of Jesus. And it just really hit me that we live in a culture where children really know the Star Wars story. But they don't know the real story about Jesus. As you sit there this morning, you need to ask yourself, what do I really believe? What am I really committed to? We need to be raising a generation that knows the story of Jesus. They need to know the story of Jesus much better than George Lucas' story. Because George Lucas' story is not going to bring life. It's not going to bring them to the kingdom of God. It's not going to enable them to conquer sin. It's not going to tell them how to really conquer the terrible darkness that's within. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, then I want our young people that are artists. I want our young people that are dramatists. I want our musicians. If Jesus doesn't come back in the next few minutes and the next few years, I want our church to be generating stuff that will be just as creative, just as communicative, just as visual as what the world is trying to do. Amen? So rather than stomping on our creative people, I want us to empower our creative people. And I want you to drink from the book of Revelation, because this is serious stuff. There's real wars going on. It says that war broke out in the heaven. I told you that this period is right in the middle of the tribulation period. As Antichrist begins to set up his idol, and as the world begins to plunge in something that the Nazis never even dreamed of, because it's not just on a European scale, but it's on a worldwide scale of idolatry, it says that war broke out in the heaven, that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, that Satan. The dragon and his angels fought back, so there's this gigantic spiritual warfare. Now, I don't know whether they use those flashing white swords and I don't know whether they have heavenly machine guns. I don't know what they do. The Bible doesn't give all of our curious details. But the Bible really does tell us that whenever there's something taking place on planet Earth, when wars break forth, when there's horrible conflict, when things go berserk, the Bible's telling us that that is a mirror image of what's happening in the spiritual realm. And how we can praise God that it says here, but he was not strong enough. Satan was not strong enough. And Satan lost and his angels lost their place in heaven. That is, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent. Take this right back to the deception of Genesis chapter 3. The devil, if you're in Spanish heritage, that's diabolos. Diabolos means the slanderer. What it means is that one of Satan's basic things that he does about you is that he tells lies about you. He slanders your reputation. Every one of you this week will hear a little voice inside of you. If you have received Jesus into your heart, you will have a little voice inside of you that says, you are guilty, you are evil, you're a bad person. If God really knew about you, he would throw you out of his family on your ear. Why don't you just go ahead and be legitimately yourself, and you're just a drunkard, and you're just immoral, and you're just a thief, and you're a drug abuser, and you're a liar and jealous. Why don't you just give in to all that stuff? And I want you to know, when you hear that voice, that's Diabolos. He's the slanderer. That's what he does. He lies about you. Because the truth of the matter is, that if you've received Jesus into your heart, you've been washed with the blood of the Lamb. You've been cleansed with a spiritual Clorox that made you whiter, whiter than snow. You are not legitimately any longer who you once were. And Satan is lying about you. And I want you to know that he even does that before the throne of heaven. 
The Bible teaches that Satan, like in the book of Job, Satan comes up in the early chapter of Job chapter 1 and he slanders Job before God. That's what Satan does. He goes before the throne room of God. You can picture the throne room of God like a great courtroom. And Satan is like a prosecuting attorney trying to bring you down. And he lies about you in the court of heaven. And he accuses you in the court of heaven. See, that mirror image, what's happening in your heart, is happening up there in the heavenly kingdom. And what the book of Revelation is telling us is that halfway through the tribulation period, God has had it with Satan. And he calls in his mighty champion, one of the mighty archangels, Michael, who's the defender of Israel. And as Satan begins to unleash his heavy artillery against this newfound faith that the Jewish people are finding during the tribulation period. And as they begin to respond to the Savior, and as Satan tries to attack them, an incredible spiritual warfare breaks forth. And what we can praise God for is that we already have the declaration that Satan is not strong enough. I want all of you to realize, I want every one of you to say after me, Satan is not strong enough. Say that with me. Satan is not strong enough. Do you believe that? You see, some of you aren't convinced of that. You see, the great thing about following the Savior, he can write the whole thing out. Satan is not strong enough. Don't let him lie to you. Don't let him slander your reputation in Christ. Don't let him convince you that you are not who Jesus says you are. Because that's what he's going to be doing during the tribulation period. That's what he's doing right now. And this incredible truth of the book of Revelation is Satan is not strong enough. Jesus is much stronger. You need to listen to the truth of what Jesus says about you. That's what your quiet time needs to be, to let Jesus communicate the truth to you. It says Satan who leads the whole world astray was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Amen? Now, some of you are saying, oh, David, what you're talking about, man, it's so pie in the sky, you know, this idea of, of spiritual warfare and this idea of, of there being warfare in the heavens and this idea of Satan and his demons. Let me read to you something from a historical source. There's a guy that most of you have never heard of. His name is H.S. Chamberlain, not Chamberlain that was the prime minister of England that sold Czechoslovakia to ruin, but this is a relative of his. And let me read to you what it says about this individual. It says, Whatever his blemishes, his mind had a vast sweep, ranging in fields of literature, music, biology, religion, history, and politics. There was nothing that he just wouldn't control. This guy, H.S. Chamberlain, would say that he would come into the grip of a terrible fever, a veritable trance, a state of self-induced intoxication, so that he says in his autobiography... In Laban's Vega, he was often unable to recognize his works, the books that he wrote, as his own work, because they surpassed even his own expectations. It says it was like a demon came over him. H.S. Chamberlain. You say, well, who in the world is H.S. Chamberlain? How many of you have ever heard of Aryan supremacy, the idea of Aryan supremacy? You're hearing that a lot in the modern culture of Texas today. Up in Colorado, I just had a dear friend tell me about one of their relatives up in Colorado, a young man that's gotten into Aryan supremacy. Aryan supremacy, the idea is that the Germanic white race is a superior race. And that the only way that evolution can continue in the next stages is for the Aryans to take control and to push down all the races. And H.S. Chamberlain wrote that there are two pure races, the Jewish race and the Aryan race, and the Jewish race is a reprobate race. 
It is an evil race. And yet it's a pure race. And therefore it needs to be totally snuffed out by the Aryan. Has anybody ever heard that in World War II? Hitler read H.S. Chamberlain's books... And when he seized control in Germany, he actually implanted that, that theory and he brought it into governmental, institutionalized, the destruction of an entire people. Now, do you think Revelation knows what it's talking about? H.S. Chamberlain wrote those books 20 years before Hitler ever came to power. And Hitler was exposed to those ideas. And Chamberlain's books were read widely in England. And he says, I got those ideas in feverish trances from demons talking to me in my, in my mind. Any World War II veterans here today? Yeah. Do you realize that the spiritual warfare that was taking place as the demons communicate violent, destructive, deceptive, slanderous lies, some of our own men in our church can remember having to go to war because of those slanderous, horrible, deceitful ideas. The same thing's taking place in our society today. This is real stuff, brothers and sisters. Chamberlain was a real man. He wrote real stuff. He did it, did it in feverish trances. And it moved people mightily. But they were lies. They were, sat- they were satanic, deceptive lies. You say, well, Dave, what are we going to do about it? You know, how do we conquer this? Well, we have the war in the heavens. Now let's look at the war on the earth. How do you defeat this kind of satanic deception? Look what it says in the next verses. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in the heaven. It's amazing how the heaven loves loud voices. It says, now have come, and this just blows me away. You have the dragon thrown out, this incredible war in the heaven. What happens? They break forth in praise. This is what God does. This just blows my mind. Here's this incredible attack. The dragon stomping around planet Earth, and he's breathing fire out. How does heaven respond to this? You know what they respond to this? They have a praise service. Now, some of you don't think that praise and worship is not important. But I want you to learn from the Holy Word of God, because it's going to be absolutely essential for your own life. Have you been declaring in your private life the praise of God this week? And I ask myself that. You see, praise and worship is not just something you tag on. It's not whether you like it. It's not a style of music. It's not whether you have drums. It's not whether you have organ. It's not... It's not an argument about form. I want you to know that praise and worship is strategic to spiritual warfare. You see, what you need to learn to do in your private life is you need to give glory to God. And I got news for you. That's hard for me. Like when I'm driving to Dallas, I want to just turn on the news and I want to just think about my own thoughts and I want to think about what the Cowboys are going to do. And in some ways, it's even unnatural for me when I'm all by myself just to say, God, I want to sing to you, and I want to praise you. And some of you say, well, my voice sounds horrible. That's what's so great about a car. No one can hear you. You're not running with you. You say, Dave, my, my, I feel like I'm in the wilderness spiritually. I feel like I'm, I'm just out of it. I feel like I'm out there in the desert. I'm being beaten up. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to take Revelation right here, and you need to join the praise of Jesus' people in the tribulation period, you need to do it before time, because we're not going to be here for the tribulation, I don't believe, because of what it said in Revelation 3. You need to join the praise right now. What do I say? You say, now have come. You declare the victory. 
What heaven does and what the people of God do on earth is they declare, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of our Christ. They declare the victory. It says, why? Because the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. He is defeated. Jesus gave us a foretaste of this when he sent his disciples out in Luke chapter 11 and they had authority over the demons and it said that the apostles came back rejoicing and Jesus said, I saw it was like, it was like Satan falling like a flash of light, falling from his authority, falling from his throne. So Luke chapter 11 is kind of a, kind of a foretaste of this, this ultimate time during the tribulation period where Satan's going to be booted out of heaven once and for all and have to come down to planet earth. So what we do is we declare that great victory that the accuser of our brethren had been thrown down. Now, how do they overcome him? I know some of my believing friends. They want to move to Colorado. They're buying AK-47s. They're moving way out in the mountains. They build big fortifications around them. Don't ever do that as a believer. You don't need AK-47s. You don't all need revolvers in your purses and all that stuff. What are you going to do with it? How do you know the person you're going to hit is a born-again believer? You see, that's just not going to protect you. You say, Dave, how can I be protected? You know what your most powerful weapon is? The praise you can give. And I'm going to tell you, this is, these are really weird weapons. It says, number one, they overcame him by their AK-47, their nuclear weapons, the power of their might. Look what it says in verse 11. How did the people of God overcome the dragon? So they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life so much to shrink from death. How do you conquer in earthly warfare against the dragon. How do you beat Satan? What are the weapons we have? We have three weapons. Number one, you have the blood of Jesus. You see, the biggest weapon that Satan has against you is to slander you and to say that you're a scum, you're evil, you're not forgiven. And the weapon you have against it is you declare the blood of Jesus. Whenever you feel like I'm unworthy, I'm a guilty sinner... I'm not worthy to be a child of God. I'm not even worthy to be in this church family. Some of you before communion will tell me that you often won't take it. Because you say, how could I ever be worthy? You're not going to ever be worthy in your own strength. You need to declare the blood of Jesus. You need to declare the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses you from all sin. If you've applied the blood of Jesus to your life, then you are cleansed. You're white. You're wearing white robes. You're beautiful before the throne of God. Don't believe what Satan says about you. You declare the blood of Jesus. That's the, and then you go out into society and you declare the word of your testimony. And now the tribulation saints are going to bring down Antichrist by publicly testifying to the power of the blood of Jesus. It's not prideful. It's not arrogant. It's not ostentatious. But it's giving testimony to Jesus. That's what we need to learn to do. That's what our teenagers need to do in school. That's what our grammar school kids need to do in school. It's what you need to do in the business. You give testimony to Jesus. And that conquers the evil one. I can't tell you the power that that brings into your office. Eventually, in the tribulation period, that's going to conquer the greatest enemy that Satan ever generates on planet Earth. So if it's going to work in the tribulation period, then it'll work now. The final thing is you declare your weapon is the blood of Jesus. Second of all, you declare it publicly. It's a testimony of your lips and of your life. And thirdly, it's the bottom line commitment of your heart. You don't love your life even unto death. And we've rapidly seen that our culture now 
is sometimes even in America demanding the blood sacrifice. The early church conquered the forces of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, because they declared the blood of Jesus. They were not afraid to testify to it, and they would give their lives for this cause. And that's what Revelation is challenging us to do today. As we close, it says, and this praise ends with, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell on the earth. But what are the earth and the sea? Because the devil has gone to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. God's only going to let Satan strut his stuff for three and a half years. This is the culminating time. It's the worst time in all of history. It's the time when Satan's able to do his worst thing we've looked at today. When Satan's able to take his people out into the wilderness, I mean, it looks like he could beat them up, but we have in this passage, God is going to protect them in the wilderness. I want you to know, as my precious brothers and sisters, you're going to go through all kinds of wilderness experiences, desert experiences. There's going to be time when you feel like there's nobody with you. Where you're going to feel like all your dreams have crashed. You're going to feel like sometimes you know, you're going to lose your job. You're going to go through all kinds of wilderness experiences. And what the children of Israel are going to learn in that wilderness, in the middle of the tribulation period, we need to learn this morning. You see, the truth of the matter is all those props that we hang on to aren't going to hold us up anyway. You need to realize that. That's what the wilderness will teach you. You don't need your house. You don't need your job. You don't need financial security. You don't need all your friends around you. As good as all those things are, they're not the ultimate thing that holds you up. And that's what the wilderness teaches you. The wilderness teaches you that everything can be taken away from me and I still have what I really need. And then it forces you to take your three weapons, which are the only weapons that will really work in the big conflicts, the major conflict with a dragon. Number one, when you're out in the wilderness, you realize, I don't have anything else. I don't have any place to turn. It makes you grab the blood of the lamb. Do you have the blood of the lamb? Has the blood of the lamb been applied to your life? If, you, if it hasn't, let the blood of the lamb come into your life today. Realize, just all you need to do is open your heart to Jesus. Say, Jesus, you shed your blood for me. My sins can be forgiven. Respond to Jesus personally like that. Don't get over the power and the thrill and the rejoicing in the blood of the lamb. You've got to do that. That's your weapon. Claim the blood of the lamb when you hear that slanderous voice inside of you. Second of all, you got to go public about this thing. You cannot have the blood of the lamb work in your life internally and have it not get into your mouth and have it not get in your hands, have it not get into your feet. You got to go public about this. You got to testify to the blood of the lamb. If you feel like you're in a wilderness and you feel like your Christianity is not working, it's not going to work until you go public. And you don't have to be obnoxious, but you need to go public. You need to really bring Jesus into conversations. You need to be asking the Holy Spirit to give you opportunities to testify. You've got to go public about it. And then thirdly, you've got to nail it down. This is the ultimate thing in my life. Jesus won't take any other place. He's the king of kings. If you want to conquer the dragon, you've got to put him, Jesus, at the top run of your ladder. Because if you don't put Jesus up there, who's going to be there? If you don't put Jesus at the top throne of your life, who's going to be in that throne? Satan is. Some of you are saying, well, I am. No, you're not. Because you're not anywhere in the same ballpark. You do not compete with the dragon. You're a different class of being. If you don't put Jesus at the throne of your life, then Satan will just grab a hold of you and he controls. And there's no need for that. You know what the children of Israel did at Jericho? They walked around the city seven times. Now, that's ignorant. That is really, that is dumb stuff. 
They marched around the city. And they have the priests. They have the priests leading them. Now that's really dumb. You have seals leading you and, and special forces. But God's spiritual people need to learn that we operate on a totally different basis. When you're going to really let the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony and not love your life to death, when you really believe in him, then you tap into a totally different power source. And that's what Jericho's about. God makes them obey him. They've got to obey him. They've got to walk around the city. But then, you know what they did? Remember, they took trumpets out and they smashed all the stuff and then they shouted. What were they shouting? When do you shout in your life? Other than when you're afraid, when do you shout? When you win, right? When you win. You see, you shout like crazy when you have great victory. That's what God made him do. He made him walk around the city, and then like ignoramuses, he made them all shout the victory. We already won. Now, I, if I was in the crowd, I would have said, nah-uh. Man, there's big walls there. Man, those walls, I've seen those, some of those ancient Canaanite walls. Man, they're just gigantic rocks. You can drive chariots around those babies. We're not getting in that city. I can see all the cynics and the Jewish people. But by a miracle of God's grace, they had some crazy followers of Moses and of Joshua, really, in that case, and all these Israelites saying, man, God says, just shout. We won the victory. And they shouted. And what happened to the walls? They came down. That's what worship is about. You see, worship is your chance to just shout the victory. And you're going to enter into incredible depths of spiritual victory and release and joy when you learn what praise and worship is. It's declaring and shouting, the walls are coming down. And that's what we need to do with the church family. We need to believe that as we look at our society, we don't need to be downcast this morning. We need to shout the victory. If the Israelites are going to be protected during the tribulation period, if God can save them from the clutches of the Antichrist, then you know what? He can even save me. And he can save you, some of you that lost your job. And some of you that don't know where the next bills are going to come from. And some of you are scared about some of your friends at school. And some of you are wrestling with stubborn habits. Some of my dear brothers and sisters are trying to break stubborn habits. How are you going to beat those stubborn habits? We need to not judge each other. We need to not come up with all kinds of self-help programs. We need to envelop one another in declaring the victory in Jesus through his blood. We need to publicly testify to it. And we need to love it enough that we'd even give our life for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the shelter in the storm. And I want to pray, Lord, that you would help me in the midst of the wilderness to realize that that's a great place to be. It's a great place to be, to be alone with you, to be totally dependent upon you, to be able to be quiet enough to hear your voice speaking upon our hearts. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help us this week to be sure that we create some wilderness time in our life, some downtime, some alone time, when we can get away and we can listen to the thing we've learned about today. Lord, one of the real terrible temptations of living today is that we live in the city. And the city is always alive. It's always bustling. And a lot of us have been doing that all week. We've just lived in the midst of the bustle of the city. And Lord, we need to learn how to create some shelter time. Some wilderness time. And I want to pray, Lord, that you would use these last few minutes to be the beginning of that kind of time, a time to hear your voice, a time to confess our total dependence upon you, 
And Lord, we close just shouting the victory to you. We thank you that through the blood of Jesus that we will have victory forever. We thank you, Lord, you're going to take care of your Jewish people, even in the worst time of their history. And how much it hurts us to read about their destruction and hurt. But oh, how thrilling it's to hear that you're going to be a, a shelter to them in the storm. And you're going to bring millions of them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.